The following is a CSPN Media podcast presentation. Hello, and welcome to Know the Score. I'm your host, Don Delorente. I'm joined by That So Jesse. What's going on, Jesse? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. We're also joined by Tyler Ball. Tyler, what's going on, man? What's going on, man? Um, missed the finals preview last week, but I'm glad to be back. And got some interesting things to talk about with the NBA finals. All right, all right. We're going to let everybody know that you can find another score right here on CSPN.us. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and SoundCloud. You can also get us on any app that allows you to subscribe, download, and listen to podcasts. So like Tyler said, we're going to jump off with the NBA Finals. Uh, we had a game last night, last night being Friday night. So now the series is at three games to one. So three games to one, part two. But um, it's a little bit different than last year. There's no suspension to Draymond Green. Um, there's Kevin Durant playing Harrison Barnes' position last year, so I doubt that um, he's going to go like oh for the last three games if it stretches out to a seven-game series. So, Tyler, since you didn't get a chance to speak during the preview, since you didn't make it, we'll let you start off with um, just talk about the game last night. The Cavs put up a rousing effort not to get swept, um, 137-116 to 116 was the final score. So give us your thoughts, Tyler. Well, um, I think that um, it was a matter of pride, and I think that LeBron realized that um, – I think they, they realized two things. Number one, um, it was just a matter of playing well enough early so you don't have to depend on being perfect at the end, and two, just the pride of not being swept. Um you know, they it was just interesting after game uh game three, the game three post game when Kyrie and LeBron acknowledged the greatness of the individuals on Golden State and you know, LeBron took a team perspective and how uh go how he remarked on Golden State's firepower. Well, you know, I think he was kind of making a play for what to do next season. Uh was it a ruse? No, not really. Um, I don't think anybody expected uh, Golden State to um, not not be ready for to uh, to sweep. I think they were coming in aggressive. However, Cleveland was the aggressor all night, and you know, there's a lot of talk social media wise about the um, the refs making a calling the game very closely specifically with Cleveland getting to the line as many times as they did in the first quarter, which led to their 48-point quarter, which led to the 48-point quarter, which is the most in uh, finals history. So remarkable that it took Cleveland four games to figure out how to attack Golden State and be more efficient on offense. Jesse, I'll talk, uh, toss it over to you. Some of your thoughts from the series as a whole and the game last night. Hmm. Um, so I was watching the game last night in and out of sleep just because I'm watching the Friday. And it was as chippy as I expected it to be. And the fact that uh, one thing that really struck out to me is how the Cavs had to break all sorts of records in order to beat Golden State. So um, the Cavaliers scored the most amount of threes in the game in, in finals history, I believe. Um, LeBron James 
scut past Magic Johnson for the most triple doubles in a finals, I believe. So all sorts of records had to be broken in order to beat Golden State, and the, that fact is why I don't think it'll go to seven. But it was fun and entertaining seeing you know Steve Kerr, Kerr and Zaza and Draymond just flip out. But I'm, not to the point, of course, of last year when Draymond you know, got ejected from a game, but it makes it more fun. So... Right. Um, 24 threes was 24 the, amount threes, of, yep. the amount of threes that they made as a team last night, um, the most by far in the finals game. Um, I think that if you're a Cavs fan, what's scary is no matter how well you played, the lead never seemed that safe. And I mean, Golden State would have a couple of good stretches on defense or Cavs would get careless with the ball on offense and their 18-point lead would go to like eight or nine points like really quick. And so it just, you know, they just had to, you guys got to play on such a edge and have such pressure to be perfect like Tyler was saying that it's got to be hard to play under that type of pressure in this type of big game atmosphere for a whole 48 minutes that knowing that any little mistake or a couple of mistakes could cost you the game and that's kind of what got them in game three. They were doing everything they needed to do, and then they just had a two-minute stretch, minute and a half stretch, where they made a few mistakes, and they went from winning to ultimately losing. So um, big thing in this game was Tristan Thompson. Uh, they attacked a little bit different. They kind of came at them with more of like a Princeton-style look with their actions, more mid-post-type play, and then kind of playing off the corners in the baseline. So it's either LeBron going baseline or Kyrie going to the corner with Kevin Love making the decision. So, you know, a little bit harder for Cleveland, I mean, for a Golden State to, you know, pack it in the defense and get to where they need to be if they space the floor that way. So the threes were open. And Golden State did play really good first shot defense, but Cleveland got a lot of offensive rebounds in that first quarter in the first half, and that kind of gave them a lot of energy. Uh, the game plan had kind of been keep Tristan Thompson off the backboard, and it worked for three games. But last night he broke out, and uh, he's really Cleveland's energy player. And uh, they played with a lot of energy, and they made a lot of threes. And so we're back to 3-1 to one again. So we're going back to California. And Jesse, what do you think you'll see in California? Do you think it goes past Game Five? I don't think it's going to go past Game Five, but you know we've seen stranger, crazier things happen in the NBA Finals between this team. So I don't. I, I think they're going to be breaking. I think the champagne's going to be flowing in the locker rooms at Golden State. Right. And, and you know, I think that the uh, let's let's add to the rare case that the role players, which have for Cleveland which have been much maligned in this series, particularly Tristan Thompson, J.R. Smith, and to a certain extent, Darren Williams. Uh, just the, the relative, the relevance of the role players uh, last night uh, finally gives Cleveland an, an opportunity to realize that they can, they can play with the Warriors, but do you think they're going to go to Oakland and give this same kind of effort and bottom line hit shots. I just don't see it. Yeah, and Steph and Clay both scored in the teens. I think Clay had thirteen and Steph had fourteen. So yeah, you can't really expect either one of those guys to give you a sub twenty point performance either. So I don't know. You know, it's gonna be tough for Cleveland to uh 
you know, do what they did again, I think, replicate at least the shooting. I think the strategy itself they can replicate, but you know, the shot making definitely won't be easy to replicate. And number two, I don't think Golden State will rebound as bad uh, in the first half of the next game. Uh, actually, they ended up out-rebounding Cleveland for the game, but they got so out-rebounded on the offensive boards in the first half, it really didn't really didn't make up, you know, make a difference at the end of the game. So, you know, it'll be very interesting to see if they can keep the ghost of last year out of their heads and, you know, just shake it off and come back on, is it Sunday night? They're going to play again? Monday night. Uh, Monday, Monday, Monday. Monday night. Monday night. So stretching it out even longer than, than normal. So is there anything else that you'd like to kind of add, Tyler, as far as like some strategy that maybe, you know, besides kind of Tyron Lue going back to the David Blatt offense a little bit? I say, um, uh, well, I'm all for putting LeBron James in the post and kind of running the action through as if he were um, not necessarily a Tim Duncan type, but kind of a guy who's um, they've kind of taken the whole point forward thing out of the conversation because LeBron's had the ball up top. Mm -hmm. Why not run the action from him in the post and take advantage of him drawing possibly double teams from, you know, and just placing the shooter opposite of where the double team would come. And maybe you get more looks that way. And on top of that, you slow the game. You legally slow the game down a la uh, Mark Jackson did I don't think, with the Pacers. I don't think that that's a part of their game plan. They haven't shown that they want to slow, quote unquote, the game down at all. I mean, you know, that doesn't seem to be a part of their adjustment at all. Their number one adjustment for game two was we're going to speed the game up. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So it doesn't look like that's a part of their game plan. I think, though, what what, what he did by putting more people in the mid post, having LeBron and Kevin Love kind of exchange in the mid post and then have them kind of play off of each other into the, you know, corners and whatnot. I think that put a lot of stress on Golden State yesterday and they weren't really ready for that because they were running a lot of their pick and roll stuff from the, you know, three point line top of the key where they could swarm and then get back. Well, when they play at that mid post like that with LeBron, especially there's no way that you can help. And then if you do help, it's too much space to cover to try to get back. So, all right. At this point, we want to bring in Nabias Wilborn. Looks like he's live from on location. So, Nabias, thank you for making a few minutes to get in on this NBA Finals talk. Uh, what did you see from Game Four that stood out to you, man? Man, shit. Um, <laughs> having a good day. I mean, things the Cavs came out. They did what they needed to do. Yeah, you can say the officiating was bad, but the bottom line is Cavs had shots, lots and lots of shots. And they found a way to win a game and not get swept. Now, does not mean they win the series? Probably not. But, hey, we said it last year, 3-1, it's over. Let's see how this thing plays out because LeBron was LeBron. The Kyrie came to the party. Kevin Love played well. Tristan Thompson played well. I mean, it was a total team effort, and that's what you need to compete with the Golden State Warriors. Right, right. And you need a little help from Golden State as a couple of their guys didn't play up to their normal standards, too. So kind of perfect storm for Cleveland last night as they were able to stave off elimination. Um, Stave. Jessica, yes? Stave. Stave. Yeah, I mean, well, look, here's another important important factor about this, right? Like, coming into it, it's like, they lose, so 
let's see how Golden State handles. I think our our, our good friend Bomani Jones always says, "Hey, the lemon booty, right?" Let's see if the Cavs are able to get another game, right? Say they get. Let's, right. let's say they get game five. I don't think it's gonna happen, but let's say they do, right? They get game five. They go back to sleep in the game six. Yeah. They they get that one, right? Can you imagine how tight Golden State would be in a game seven facing potentially giving up two series leads in back to back years? Yeah, I mean I I don't think it'll happen just because I think Golden State is that good. But if it gets to game seven, man. Here here is the here is the thing. We need to see what happens the first quarter early in uh on Monday night. Yeah, game five. If Golden State is out comes out firing and let's say they have a thirty five point first quarter, then you gotta assume that there they will be up ten or eleven points and you know a ten or eleven point lead in Golden State is almost impossible to overcome. Especially in Oakland. I would even say I would even say not necessarily the scoring of Golden State, the rebounding. If they're if they're if Cleveland's shooting but they're only getting one shot, then then you're looking good if you're a Golden State fan. The rebounding I think is more key because the, the shot making I think is the one thing you probably don't really worry about. They're gonna get shots up, they're gonna make shots, but can they rebound and keep Cleveland off the offensive backboards? That's the whole key to everything that Golden State does. So, cool. Jesse, anything else? Game five preview. You said you want to see. You think the champagne is going to be flowing? Yeah, trolling. Just they're, they're that good. They're going to troll. And I don't think. I mean, for Cleveland to win this, they have to sustain last night's effort for four games. I right. don't see that energy in him just because you see LeBron worn out, you see Kyrie worn out. So, I don't see it happening right now. All right. All right. I don't see it happening in like four must plus one. Hey man, I, I I think I think the Cavs can win. Why not? All it takes again. I mean, you got to be nearly perfect to beat those. There's a team that can do it, and is the Cleveland Cavaliers. I think they've shown a minute thirty seconds from winning Game Three. You win Game Three, you're going to two two series. This is actually a series of the whole other ball game. Mm-hmm. So, would I be surprised if the Cavs win Game Five? Absolutely not. I mean, why not? I mean, they've shown it can win on the. I mean. LeBron James, I mean, look, Kevin Durant's playing well. Steph Curry's playing well. Those guys are special. But LeBron James is still the baddest man on the planet when it comes to the NBA. And I don't see why he can't, particularly if Kyrie steps up again. Well, let's understand. Um, oh, sorry, Tyler. I, I just don't understand what the thing the, the thinking is. It's like, at what point do you just make him pass the ball to somebody? You know, Ooh. I mean, I, I, Kyrie. I understand that they're that they're you know trying to just have Clay stay in front of him and just you know make him make him take a tough shot. But that's kind of what he does. You kind of playing into what he does. He makes tough shots. So why don't you just make him do what he really doesn't want to do, which is be a point guard and pass the ball to people? I just that you know that's just kind of it seems like kind of counterintuitive in their in how they're guarding him. Well, see, that's another thing you got to consider too. Um, you know, with LeBron being on his opposite side, he can always he can always find an open lane. Or if you have a shooter on his offhand, particularly on his on his right side, because he can actually finish with either hand. But if you got it to a place where he can kick it kick it outside, 
uh, particularly to a corner shooter, then that opens the entire lane up because he, you're playing him for the drive. Yeah, and it seems like he gets to the rim. Other than then, of course, the last minutes of game game three, uh, he's he's pretty much gotten to the rim anytime he's wanted. It seems like he does enough of that shimmying with his head down that you can kind of steer him where you want him to trap him at and kind of, you know, just, you know, have your defense ready to make that just rotate to that first pass to try to, you know, so that second pass can't get to you. Usually the second pass is what beats you on the rotation, not the first one. You can kind of get out to that one. So if you're kind of anticipating the trap is going to come, you can cheat and get out on that shooter that you're talking about and make him, you know, just make Kyrie be a point guard. As clearly he doesn't want to be. He just wants to get the ball and score it. And and that kind of is their offense. We got two guys who can get the ball and score it, and we got one guy who can get the ball and score it when he wants, who can pass it. So we use him as like our de facto point guard. And the guy who brings the ball up all the time that's supposed to be our point guard, he's just our best, you know, number two scorer clutch guy. It's kind of a weird way that they kind of have their dynamic set up for a team, but it works for them because LeBron James can do everything. He covers up a lot of Kyrie's, you know, non-playmaking point guard abilities. But that being said, just letting you know that this is no score. We are on the CSPN.us. You can find us there. You can also find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. So at this point, we're going to turn it over to Tyler. He's going to get us uh, up to date on some things that's been going on in the world of college athletics. There's been some moves going on. So uh, change to the landscape. So, Tyler, the floor is all yours, man. All right. Um, a couple of major changes in the college landscape this week. Um, we have, after 18 years, Oklahoma head coach Bob Stoops has announced that he will step away from um, the Oklahoma from his head coaching position at Oklahoma. Um, he may remain as a kind of consultant, which means, you know, don't call me, I'll call you. Basically, uh, he's handing over the reins to head coach and waiting, and it was pretty obvious he was uh, in uh, Lincoln Riley, who was the offensive coordinator. Um, you can talk about the greatness of Stoops, his, consist- his remarkable consistency over the years. Uh, you know, the only knock against him is that uh, he has probably won. Uh, he's only has one national championship, has probably lost a direct shot at three others. And, of course, uh, that's going to be his only issue when you're comparing him against the other coaches that have been around as long as he has. But... You know, maybe they start over again with Lincoln Riley, and he takes that next step. Uh, but what's cool, what's, what's kind of weird about Stoops is he got his reputation for being the guy to bring the, enough defense to the fun and gun that Florida got a chance to win a national championship. So then he gets hired to Oklahoma when Oklahoma was in the depths and they were kind of stuck in kind of old school, you know, football. Then he brings them to kind of the modern style to what we know the Big 12 is now. He was kind of the architect of that. But then he could never play enough defense again to win a national championship with Oklahoma after he won the first one. So, well, I mean, very, very look, man. I mean, here's the thing, right? Um, this is the longest time that Oklahoma has been without a national championship in over 60 years. I mean, they haven't gone 16 years without a title. And, you know, football is everything to that school, to that university. And, and the fact that it's so hard, right, because he's been able to compete, Oklahoma has no natural recruiting base. I mean, Oklahoma doesn't have the football player that the state of Texas does just by sheer size, sheer number. I mean, they, they do it pretty well in West Texas, but they're getting the guys that the University of Texas doesn't want. 
And when you combine it with Baylor and all these other places coming up, it's really tough for those guys to recruit. So in one way, the fact that he's been as good as he has is sure amazing. But then when you combine all of it, it may be time for a change. And we'll see if young Riley, I mean, geez, kids, 30 guys, 30, I say kid because I'm not like, like I'm not the same age. But, you know, guys, 33, I mean, that's really young to be a head coach of such a important program. They didn't, they didn't put the interim tag on him either. So that means this is definitely the way they want to go. And they see him as the future of what they want going forward. But is this, like you said, is this really an issue of, um, you think of what's north of Oklahoma being Kansas, and that's more of a basketball heartland instead of football. And, and ironically, Oklahoma, you can honestly say Oklahoma has done better in basketball lately than they have in football, or at least over the past five years. Well, I mean, but even that's not necessarily true. I mean, because, like, we, we only – like if we look at Oklahoma, we're looking at just if we look at are we looking at just through the frame of winning a national championship? Because I'd say they've done a lot in the last five. Years. Yeah, and most of them will take what Oklahoma's done. I'm not saying you know what Oklahoma has should be happy with it, but that's record record. Well, it's because, you know, you have to also look at things as when he got there, Oklahoma was off the map. Now he's gotten them to the point where they're so on the map, the expectations, he's he's had the expectations that hasn't come through with him. He's been ranked number one, lost in, you know, the Houston, you know, first game, getting embarrassed, or, you know, the year, you know, they, they're supposed to be the best team in the country and they play for the national championship, they get smoked. So, you know, I, I think that... I mean, expect- you're still getting there, though, right? Right, but I think at some point, it's like Coach K's early years. Yeah, he was getting there, but at some point, when you're expected to win, you got to do it once or twice. You know, the expectation I mean, of winning. I get what y'all are saying. Yeah, I get what y'all are saying. I'm, not even, I'm sorry. I get what y'all are saying. I'm not even saying you're wrong. It's just mm-hmm. I, I got a feeling. Now, hey, who knows? This guy Riley may be Lincoln Riley may be that dude, and maybe he takes him to a championship, but. I, you know, I also think sometimes you got to be careful what you ask for because if you let a guy like this go, and then you don't get back to close to where he was, it's. I think University of Georgia faces a similar thing, right? right. If Kirk, what yeah. happens if Kirby Smart ain't that dude? Now right. you're set back even further. So right. it, it, it's it's hard to win, and I think sometimes certain places got to look at realistically. Like they, Oklahoma still thinks of itself as in the '50s and '60s and '70s when they were rolling. And times have changed. It's a little harder to get a kid to go to Norman, Oklahoma. Have you, been, have you, ever, been, any of you ever been in Norman, Oklahoma? No. Nope. Yeah. Well, I, I, I tell I you this. So, yeah, it's it's literally nothing. It's almost like um, I, I, I've, I've actually visited most of the big A schools, and most of them, with the, ex, with the exception of SMU, which is in Dallas, it's nothing. Or it's all, all of that university that runs the town, and that's it. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, you got Austin, you got Texas, you got, you got yeah, that's Austin's Austin, pretty Texas. vibrant because it's cause it's got Dell, but you know, but just think, think about that dust, the quote unquote dust bowl of reputation of that conference going back to when it was the Southwest Conference, right, it right, right, was just football and oil. That's that that sentiment is still there. Well, yeah, I mean, and you also got to remember too in that era, I mean, because the Big Eight in the Southwest end up combining. That's how you have, I guess, the Big Twelve or whatever it's called. So yeah, but you look at you know, look at. Oklahoma, OSU. I mean, you look at those campuses. I mean, look at I mean, Norman. It's a beautiful campus there, but there ain't nothing in that town, brother. I can tell you, I, I've been there more than you would think, man. There's not much. So I started to say, I have to recruit national. It's not like University of Texas where they have a 
in-state recruiting base. It's not like UGA or Florida that have like these big in-state recruiting bases or Southern Cal. Like, in order for they have to recruit us, it's almost like University of Michigan, where anytime Michigan's been good, it's because they've been able to dip into Ohio and get players out of the city of Cleveland, so on and so forth. For Oklahoma to be good, whenever they've been good, they've always had players from West Texas, i.e. Um, Adrian Peterson. You know, you can go on down the line. You go back and look at their great players. A lot of those guys have come out of that state of Texas. And now it's harder for them to get those guys than it's ever been. Because, I mean, look, like you said, if, if SMU is going to be good, why not go to Dallas? Austin is a great town. It's the state capital of Texas and a really fun city. I mean, you would go there. Oklahoma's going to have some challenges. And it's not going to be what those fans think is going to be being able to get and sign big-time efforts. And let us not forget, Tom Herman, who was at Houston, is now at Texas. Right. So you killing two birds with one stone with one hire. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, it, it, it's going to be it's going to be tougher for Oklahoma than they think it is. Um, again, because of being able to get those kids there. Now, hey, like I said, if Lincoln Riley's that coach, plenty of money down in Oklahoma. So I mean, you know, they'll, they'll get players, but it, it will be harder than they think. All right, want to continue the college discussion. Um, we're going to go with uh, the next hire in a similar situation at Ohio State basketball where uh, uh, Dad Mata has been – well, it was announced that Dad Mata will be stepping down this season and uh, and taking over will be the uh, the former head coach at the University of Butler uh, who, uh, you know, just finished a year at the NCAA tournament. So um, – He's coming in with an eight-year deal, which is which is nuts. Uh, Chris Holtman is his name, and he'll be taking over. So, uh, any immediate reaction to to the hire? Uh, I mean, we'll see. I mean, yeah. go. On, I'm sorry, somebody going. I'm sorry. I'm no, I was gonna say, um, as for Ohio State, you know, it's hard. It's hard. You no, know, recruiting Big Ten, and you know, expect. Yep, there's big expectations. I'm not sure they're gonna meet, but. They hired the guy at the Butler. I forget his name right now, but I think Holman, Holman, yeah, Chris Holman. Yeah, Holman. I mean, I think it's going to be harder to recruit into the state of Ohio than Ohio State thinks, especially with. Well, Baltimore actually, I, I I I disagree because um, really? the city. I disagree. Yeah, I tell you why. Well, one, okay. I mean, Ohio State, the basketball program, they have they have good, great facilities. Actually, some of the they best facilities in their conference. Um, the arena's nice, and the workout facilities nice. They got that LeBron James money coming in. And on top of it, you know, the city of Cleveland, they've recruited that city pretty well. They've also recruited the city of Indianapolis well. Actually, Indianapolis, they've recruited Indianapolis better than the University of Indiana has. So, I mean, there's enough basketball talent around in the Midwest for them to get some. I think you'll be fine. I know Holtman came after um, Brad Stevens and kept the thing going at Butler. So, I I haven't covered him. So, I'm, but I'm going to assume he's a pretty damn good coach. I mean, he kept things going there, and he came up under Stevens. I'm assuming he's, he's a good coach, and if he can recruit, you know, he, they got that Nike money behind them. They, they, they'll figure it out. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, when you take, like, a mid-major coach and bring him to a quote-unquote major program, kind of like this, the coaching part of it, I never really worried about. It actually might even be an upgrade from that model as far as, you know, X's and O's and strategy part. But it's the you know, the stuff that happens in the summertime, the recruiting, the the boosters, the getting along with the people in the suits, that's kind of, 
the thing that they may have to worry about and the interaction with uh, higher level recruiting players. You know, it's one thing to have kind of coaches, players a little bit less, you know, more, you know, want to do the thing that you want to put on the board and then jumping up to another level where you might have a kid that's got all this talent. It's a little rough around the edges when it comes to coaching wise. Those are the things that that, that he might have to encounter that he hasn't encountered yet at Butler. And keep in mind, I mean, this is a this is a program that got Greg Oden and Conley there at the same time. I mean, they've had Lighty. I mean, they've had players. I mean, and look, same Joe about that amount of, but he had a he had a hell of a run there, man, and got that program back to being good. Ohio State. I, like I said, I mean, they're invested in basketball, and again, you know, LeBron James is invested in that program, so the money's going to come in. They're going to be able to recruit, and yeah, you'll be able to have. You know, I think one of the first calls Holton made was to LeBron. You know what I'm saying? Um, JD Greg Smith during the finals went and met with LeBron and got you know LeBron step on this guy. So yeah, it, it, like I said, it, it ain't gonna fall off, man. I, I think they'll be able to get it and be okay. Will they be as good as say a Michigan, some of these other programs? Maybe not, but they'll be in the mix. Yeah, that's what I was gonna get at. But, but do I'm you give sure him eight? Do you give him eight years though? Well, I mean, honestly, though, but these contracts now, you know, he's not going to see the whole eight years. That's just him having a damn good agent and basically making sure that he's going to get paid, you know, if he doesn't work out in four years. But that, that's why – and you'll see more of these seven, eight-year contracts for coaches because basically guys are trying to protect themselves financially. That's all that is. All right. Just a reminder that you are listening to Know the Score here on the CSPN. You can – Reach us at the Twitter, uh, the on Twitter at KTSPOD, and you can find all of us individually and in our at at the Notice Score Twitter. Uh, Nabias, I know you're live on a location. Um, just could take this yes, to let you talk about um, how how your uh, Braves are doing and anything that you can see, anything that you've seen so far in baseball, because now. You know, baseball is coming to the forefront of the national scene since it's after Memorial Day and the NBA season is almost over. Um, any any thoughts on what's going on in baseball? Well, shit, they ain't my Braves, but they are the Braves. Uh, no, nah, but seriously, I'm actually sitting here in the, in the dugout, and I just got back in town from um, – yeah, I'm barely awake, but I'm here. So, anyway, and for a doubleheader um, today, we're going to see the debut of Sean Newcomb. Um, you know, pitchers don't talk on the day of their start, but I got to see him a little bit, and um, I covered him down when he was up in that. Saw him in spring training. The kid has a solid curveball, and that fastball lights it up. I think you have a chance to see what's going to be special. Then in the second game, you have Matt Whistler, a guy who's making like his 42nd appearance as a major leaguer, and a guy who is now trying to show that he can stick here with the Braves. So today is definitely, and I say this Saturday, I'm assuming it, when, when, this airs Sunday. Yeah. So yeah, by the time this by the time this airs, you already have known you already know the result of what happened. But you know, this will be raised fans for the last couple of years have been asking when are we going to see the kids? When they're going to see the kids? Well, today on this beautiful Saturday, you're going to see the kids. So now have a chance. You know, the Braves organization has shown some willingness. They went out and got Matt Adams. Matt Adams has played pretty well in the stead of Freddie Freeman, who. For the first month and a half of the season, was having what looked like was going to be one of the great seasons in baseball history, and unfortunately, got hit in the hand against Toronto on just a freak play. You know, broke some bones up in there, and he's going to be out 
for I think at least another eight weeks. So that's going to be tough. I mean, you know, the Braves are coming into today's action about five games out of five games from being a 500 team. Talked to Brandon Phillips earlier. He said if the Braves get to 500, they can really make some noise. So we'll see if that's true. Pitching has been a struggle for this team, which is why it's even more important to see what these kids do today. Um, and, you know, shout out to the Yankees. I mean, they have figured out a way. Their rebuild has worked. And they don't even have Greg Bird yet, but the kid Aaron Judge has been a monster, and it looks like he's got a very bright They're good. The Astros are just kicking it and tearing it up. And, I mean, the Nationals, I mean, they're leading the National League East in what, quite honestly, is a very weak division, considering that the Mets have Syndergaard out. Matt Harvey had a good start last night, his first good start in, shit, about a month. So, the Mets and also Mr. Cepedes, who will be, I think, in action. He is here in Atlanta today. So, I think he's either going to play today or tomorrow. I haven't seen it. As we're recording here, I haven't seen today's lineup. Mm-hmm. I don't have it in front of me. So, I think Cepedes will play either in the first or second game today. Coming back, so maybe the Mets will get it together, but it's been it, it's been a fun season in a lot of ways, and we will see what the Braves are. But like I said, right now, Braves are just focused on getting to five hundred and seeing what's going to come next with some of these kids who they've been talking about in Double and Triple A coming up when the forty man roster expands. Let me let me ask you about um, the Colorado Rockies. Is this bullpen for real? I mean, can they continue well, I mean, to kind of do what they're doing in that ballpark? It's been amazing. They're, they're a home bullpen. I mean, they finally figured out how to keep the runs down in Coors Field. Well, I mean, you know, there's a secret, right? <laughs> well, not really a secret, but I, I joke when I say that. But, I mean, you got to have pitchers who can get the ball down. You right. got to have pitchers who can get strikeouts and get ground outs. If you can do that, then you're fine. You, you, you can't have fly ball pitchers in parks like that. And, oddly enough, I think SunTrust Park here in Atlanta – is starting to play that, whereas Turner Field was a pitcher's park. And for those of you fuddy-duddies, the old school, you remember Atlanta Fulton County Stadium was almost a launching pad. So I think this place is kind of a launch pad. But to answer your question, what they what they have are guys who get strikeouts. Right. Guys who get strikeouts, hey, um, you know, thinking man meme, right? Can't mm-hmm. hit can't hit home run if you can't hit it, right? Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a lot of things that a lot of people don't take into consideration is, like, you have to kind of shape your baseball team to your home ballpark. So, you know, once you start – looking at kids, especially for pitchers and hitters, you know, like the Mets that has such a big ballpark, they couldn't hit home runs, so, but they kept, right. kept trying to get these home run hitters. It's like, well, you need to kind of change up your park, you know, so they went with the pitching, and they had a good season that year, you know, but, you know, the exactly. pitching hasn't been helping there's, further. But There's no sport where the field of play affects it more than baseball. I mean, the, the field of play, everything from the infield, if the infield is a little rocky, that can cause some issues because the balls are played funny. If the grass is cut too high, too low, I mean, the field of play affects baseball more than any other sport. And as I mentioned with the Braves, I think we're still figuring out what what SunTrust Park is and what it plays like. Like I said, it seems like a hitter's park now, and it hasn't even gotten hot yet. So here's to see what the humidity is going to do as the ball flies out. Because right now, I get out of here in a hurry. Uh, last night, I was watching, I was at the finals, I was watching the Braves game, and, you know, Granderson took Jason Mott. Deep on a on a ball that probably is a maybe a double and maybe a double yeah, in center field, but here it's a home run. Here's another another thing. Um, also, uh, over the years, I've listened to um, 
a former Sporting News alum when it comes to baseball, um, Bob Kemp, who's now in Phoenix. Uh, Kemp has been contending that, you know, he, he subscribes to the juice ball theory literally over the past couple of years, and uh, especially with uh, the kid at uh, Cincinnati who hit four bombs and drove in ten runs uh, uh, this, this past week. Uh, are you buying that maybe – Maybe something's being done with with the baseballs itself themselves, or you know, I know the field of play is important, but could uh, it be the ball? I mean, it could be. It's so hard to tell that stuff, and and that's something that takes years to kind of see if there's a difference. I mean, would I be surprised if the balls are wound a little tighter now? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I've heard I've heard guys say that. Not just Kemp, but other guys. But then I'll talk to some ball players, and some say they don't notice a difference, and some say they do. I think at, at the end of the day. <laughs> No matter what it is, ball meets back. I will say this. The ballparks now are smaller than ever. Like Cincinnati is a total bandbox. Philly's a total bandbox. It's a joke how much ball's got there. Um, SunTrust at least plays pretty fair, but, you know, the ball gets out of here. I don't but think – Centerfield's still three, three, 400. I mean, the power alleys are 375. I mean, you know, that right field – you know, that right field by the pole is 325. I'm literally looking at the dimensions now. And, I mean, so, yeah, like the dimensions, you know, it's not a small part, but the ball gets out. So, as far as with the balls, I'm not saying Kemp is wrong because I, I read his stuff. He's very smart. I'm just going to say it's very hard to tell that, and you need more time. But, as I was saying with the Rockies, with their pitchers, man, I think they figured something out, and they're going to be pretty good in, in what is still one of the tougher divisions in baseball. I don't think they've given enough credit to bat technology, though. Bats are bats are a lot different than they used to be. It used to be guys have really big handles and really big barrels. Now they got these mm-hmm. little skinny handles and these really yes. huge barrels. And so they're getting a lot more bat on the ball than they used to, just the mm-hmm. way the bats are made. So even if the balls are wound a little bit tighter, like you're saying, Tobias, there's more bat getting to the ball. So that's the reason why velocity is starting to, you know, get to a big thing now where the velocity of the you know, ball leaving the bat is starting to like a big stat. Yeah, well, that's the thing, too. Like, and, and, it's, and it's crazy because you can see all these stats if you do stat cast and all these other things where, you know, you look at the velocity of 110. Like, I mentioned Aaron Judge earlier. He had a ball the other day that came off his bat at 110 miles an hour. It went right up the, right up the middle. I mean, what do you do? So, yeah, I mean, you know, the game evolves. I think baseball, like I said again, more than any other sport, the field and the equipment affect baseball a lot. I mean, even the batting gloves are different. I mean, the tape's different. I mean, they're doing a lot of different things. So, you know, there was a period where the hitters had it, you know, during the juiced era, quote-unquote. Then when that went out, the pitchers had it. And I think now the hitters are starting to catch back up again. So it goes in cycles, man. All right, just a reminder that you are listening to Know the Score. And you can catch us live on the CSPN.us. You can also check some of our past episodes as well. Uh, Don, you know, kicking it back to you. Uh, do you have, and as we say goodbye to uh, the bias, we want to thank you for, for catching in as he's getting ready for uh, getting ready for the uh, baseball doubleheader with the Braves. Um, I think we can round up with uh, final thoughts for today. If you have anything, uh, Tobias, as you go out, uh, anything you want to talk about? Or- well, I mean, you know, uh, real quick, I won't keep it too long. What I will say is, you know, man, this week's star, 
depth of two people who I really care about. Tim Frank with the NBA, who was over a lot of the PR stuff, and a good friend of mine, Dan Rosen. Uh, we used to work for CNN as a brewer. So, you know, two men I got to know on levels, man, and now I'm not with us anymore. And it just goes to show you yet again, life is valuable. Make sure you tell the people in your life that you love them, and man, God bless you all that you want to for having me again and man looking really forward to kicking with y'all throughout the rest of the summer no, no problem Tobias thanks for joining us man bye Tobias and at this time we're going to turn it over to Jesse and she can give us a little talk and what's going on in the world of soccer alright so last Saturday um, Real Madrid and Juventus played in the UEFA Champions League where Real won La Duel Decima which is their 12th Champions League title further solidifying their reign as one of the best teams in Europe and we had a goal from Ronaldo. We had a goal from Casemiro, and I think it was in Cardiff, and it was a wank bang doodle. It was also also suspected it could might be Gianluigi Buffon's last game as the Juventus goalkeeper. Um, Tyler, what did you see from that game, or what what do you lo- what do you love about this game or that game that match in particular? What I loved um, was the fact that Juventus. Uh, um, we we all knew that Real was going to take over, particularly in the second half, as they did. But we love Juventus willing to bring the fight to Real early, and after getting one of the greatest goals that you will ever see uh, from the uh, from a Croatian superstar uh, with a with a literal standing bicycle volley, Mandzukic, uh, yes, Mandzukic, uh, to tie the game at one. Uh, after that, Real just turned it up uh, another level. It's a, it was as if uh, it, it was as if Real just decided to uh, reassert its dominance, and they essentially controlled the ball. Uh, they controlled the midfield, and all of a sudden, you had successful runs from um, Ronaldo, from Cristiano Ronaldo, as he ended up scoring. Uh, uh, not only. Did he score in the first half? He also scored in the second half as well, um, just on just brilliant, brilliant runs. And of course, uh, Luka Modric got involved too, and uh, Sergio Ramos essentially kept the ball out out of midfield, doing as he does. Um, and you could just see where Real was just two steps above Juventus just about every time. And eventually, Juventus went down uh, to ten men, and that was pretty much uh, you know just waiting for the trophy presentation. Uh, it's a it's a bittersweet departure for uh, Buffon, who uh, you you almost have to put him up there with with um, you know he might be the, the greatest Italian player ever to do it. Some some will say uh, he is that loved in in Italy um, for weather, for club and country. He has been a mainstay in in the European in the European soccer, uh, and this will be the only title that you know. Assumedly, that you can assume that he probably won't go home with, because uh, we know that he's near his last days on on the pitch. But he's had a remarkable career. He can say that he's been to three uh, Champions League finals. Uh, he's won. A, he's won a um, a uh, World Cup. I mean, he's just about done everything you can do in the terms of professional soccer. So. Uh, he will be remembered as one of the greats for his um, his length and his spectacular athleticism. He definitely will be missed, and you know now you got to know who's going to be that next great keeper that we can defend on. Was it 
could it would it if, uh, you thought it would be Ica Casillas with span with the Spanish success on the world stage, but uh, he's had his he's a bit of an enigma. So you know who's going to take that mantle from Buffon as the greatest uh, as the best keeper in the world, and that's that's an interesting question. Yeah, because I really haven't seen anyone who come, has come out heads and shoulders in that regard. So, uh, and you know, are there really five or six really good ones that that you can depend on across across Europe? I mean, the fact that Tim Howard is even in the conversation could tell it kind of brings to light. I mean, is is the goalkeeping situate? Is the goalkeeping across uh, Europe that great? Fair point. Yeah, you got to wonder about that. I mean, Tim will say, oh, I, I, yeah, like I said, I can't think of someone like, oh, this one, he's, you know, Satan's, or you still have Iker Casillas, who is a good goalkeeper, even though he's, you know, now he plays at Porto, sure, but, and he does, you know, he has his moments where he shows moments of brilliance, but I can't definitively say that there's one keeper I would say that, oh, well, Maybe what's his name? Manuel Nauer. That's the only one that. That's the only one that really comes to me because you know the goalkeeper for Germany. But mm-hmm. yeah, well, Maybe- that's that's really about it. And and I just think that nobody has really taken keeping to a step to where you can say that they are. I don't. I don't want to say reliable because I, I think that it's one of the most difficult jobs in the world. But to have him as a it's been a while since you can say that a keeper is actually a a true threat as far as um being recognized with the exception of maybe uh you know maybe with howard's performance at the world cup a few years back but that's really about it right so this week we also saw a few um european qualifying games the world cup the world cup will be held in russia next year um, any matches that come to you? I know yesterday for me there was Italy, no, there was Sweden versus France where Giroud scored a goal for France, but Sweden pulled ahead two goals to one. But any qualifying game for the World Cup that have stood out? Um, I think that uh, every the what throughout the conversation was uh, France and Sweden, um, where the uh, winning goal was scored in extra time when the keeper came off his line. And un- unmistakably uh, let a ball just uh, didn't clear the ball, and eventually uh, uh, Sweden recovered and, and sent the ball past him, almost about sixty feet away. So, uh, but other than that, it's pretty much business as usual. Um, I think that there's a, there's going to be a lot of heavy interest in uh, – the USA's two qualifiers uh, with one with uh, Trinidad and Tobago and um, Mexico coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this is a chance for, uh, for Bruce, Bruce arena to make a, to make a statement finally as him assuming control of team USA, because it's clearly not one of USA's better qualifying squads. I think they're still recovering after, uh, after Landon Donovan, um, I think that they, I think that USA is relying a lot on of, on Clint Dempsey as far as their offense, and they need Josie out the door to get back in and reestablish his confidence. And there are also a ton of questions on the defensive end too. So, um, I think that a victory or getting points against Mexico would be huge for Team USA. Okay. And then one player. Now, speaking of the US team, I want to talk about one player in particular, Christian Pulisic. Um, he plays his club football in for Borussia Dortmund. Many of 
said that he has restored their he has helped restore their faith in U.S. soccer. Um, I think he's unreasonable for me. I think he's unreasonable. He's just you know. I would also say that you know he was he's going to be a key player. Uh, he's an emerging key player in uh, the U.S. qualifier. Just because he's so young, so good, and he's only eighteen. So there's so many years ahead of him that he can be you know a stalwart and a captain for the U.S. team, but. Uh, did, uh, did you watch the, the Trinidad and Tobago match? I believe that was Wednesday. I, I did. I did see okay. that. And cautious optimism is the mm-hmm. phrase being used for Christian right now um, because he's still he's still learning. I, you know, he can put the, the back of the net, and and I think that any time that you can do that, you're going to be recognized as a as a. That's where he. Kind of, kind of looked out of place, particularly um, scrambling counterattacks and trying to um, just, just getting back in um, individual one on one defending situations too. It's, it's just where um, he, he's just still, he is still learning how to combine all of his, um, all of his skill, uh, particularly in in open, and that's he's going to improve. So it, it's. It's great to look forward to. It's great that he can finish because you need something to uh, to focus your defense on. But uh, I'm just looking. To, I'm looking to see uh, Altador or the or as well in midfield to just take over and assume leadership because we haven't had that since the good run of of um, Michael Bradley. So that's step one for Team USA. They've got to get better at midfield. Fair enough. Okay, so we'll end the segment off just kind of previewing the FIFA Confederations Cup. If you don't, for those who don't know, the FIFA Confederations Cup is a tournament that is held in the host nation of the World Cup the year before the World Cup actually happens. The teams invited are all of the Continental Cup winners, including the and the host nation and the previous the World Cup winners of the pre, the winners of the previous World Cup. So in this year's tournament, you have Russia, you have New Zealand, you have Cameroon, you have Germany, you have Mexico, you have. Chile and you have Portugal. So, really quickly, Tyler, is this a? Are you a fan of the Confederations Cup tournament? Just because it's just a, such a dress rehearsal, and you have really good teams to play, but it's kind of a min, not a minnow tournament, but a minor championship. Although all the players want to win it. Well, um, I think that the Confederations Cup gives younger players an opportunity to uh, get an opportunity to play on the world stage. I think that a lot of times when you play with club, your club gets uh, your tip, your exposure to, you know, just fans of your club. But however, um, when you play for, for that national shirt, you get exposure to the world. I think that when you do that, I think that even though the Confederation club is technically, like you said, a dress rehearsal, I believe that it gives a lot of young players that experience that they need to go into the World Cup the following year. And any experience is good experience when you go and compete for that gold trophy. Um, that being said, there's going to be a lot of elite players in this um, in the Confederations Cup, which you know gives the tournament validity. Um, everybody wants to see Cristiano Ronaldo, and of course he will be playing, which is great. Um, but he's not the only world star. Um, you know, you have, you know, you can bring in um, your your top talent from from Europe, like Luka Modric, or some some folks that you just saw in Real Madrid. 
a lot of them will be competing in the Confederations Cup. So um, I really, really like chances to see some of the best players in the world, even when it's not the World Cup. They're playing against elite competition, so they're going to bring it. So, yeah, I think that Confederations Cup is a great opportunity. All right. All right. Well, thank you guys for a great talk about soccer. I know we don't get a chance to really bring that up here on the show, so it's a good chance that you guys get some uh, quality time to get that in. So at this point, I'm going to open it up to both of you. So we'll start with Jesse. Anything else on the fringes that you just want to wrap up the show with? Anything that sticks out? I know Stanley Cup is uh, uh, be still uh, all for PK, right? Yes, I am. How's it looking? You know, after Sidney Crosby trying to mush his head in the ice, still team PK, like, just ride harder, a little bit harder. Um, what else has stuck out to me this week? Hmm, I've, it's been a busy week. And it's just, everything's just going so fast. So um, hopefully Nashville can take this game to 3-3. Uh, I hope someone can mush Stanley Crosby's face into the ice. And we'll take it from there. All right. Tyler? Um, two things. Uh, going back to, uh, I'm also with you. Um, I have been, uh, and actually, I think with this incident with Crosby and PK, um, you're starting to create a rivalry that the NHL needs. Um, who who would have thought that uh, that PK Subban would, you know, be the subject of conversation when uh, when you get to Stanley Cup? I mean, Nashville is the lowest seeded team. Uh, in this tournament, uh, the fact that they're even in the Stanley Cup is a story in itself. Uh, they were propelled by the Subban trade. And now you've got the perennial star of the NHL, probably the number one player in the NHL, going at this guy. Uh, this is great theater. I mean, it's even better theater for than some say. Uh, actually, a lot of folks are saying that this is better theater than the NBA Finals, even though there have been just as many lopsided games uh, in the NHL Finals. Uh, you know, now you've got Charles Barkley appearing in Nashville. You've got bar fights in Nashville, even involving Rex and, Rex and Rob Ryan. You've got, um, you know, you've got the, the national anthems being sung by country, country music's finest. Uh, you know, regardless of whether they do do the anthem well or not, but the fact is, Nashville has become the darling of the NHL after hosting the All Star Game uh, last year. So now they have the team that's just as that's just as good, and they have a hot goaltender. So Pecorino shows up tonight in Nashville. I mean, it very well could be decided in Game Seven. Uh, my final thought for the evening: I just want to send. A special shout-out to my alma mater, North Carolina A&T State University. Uh, last night, the Aggies competed in the NCAA Track and Field Championships in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, I want to spend a, send a special shout-out to uh, Chris Belcher, who recorded two of his lifetime best times, um, finishing under – he ran twice under 10 seconds in the 4 by – I mean, in the 100-meter dash, where he ended up uh, third – um, he will automatically become the first team All-American. He finished fifth in the 200 meters uh, later on. And the uh, four by one meter relay team also finished third nationally, breaking the school record. Um, the third place finish is the best overall in school history um, in any in any NCAA final. Um, so those guys are going to come home with some medals and hardware. And that's a major, major statement for uh, North Carolina Ante, which finished the 
NCAA tournament with 16 points, which tied for them for 14th in the country. Um, they qualified 13 athletes um, when you total all the men and women. Um, and five of those, uh, six of those athletes made the finals. So the, the track and field future is looking very, very bright for North Carolina A&T. Uh, it's a ma- an amazing story uh, to see. I mean, you see an HBCU up there with uh, with all of those athletes there. 13 athletes is the most that HBCU has brought ever to a Division One meet to qualify. So uh, that's just outstanding. Uh, the Aggies did sweep indoor and outdoor championships. Uh, first time that's been done in the in the MEAC since uh, Hampton did it in 2003. Uh, so just absolutely unexpected and remarkable a year for North Carolina A&T, and it was great to see them on uh, getting highlighted on ESPN last night. So uh, that's uh, my final thoughts, and looking forward to recording with you guys soon. All right. Um, my real quick final thought, again, talk about some auto racing, hashtag rampant black neckery. As this week, for the first time since 2006, we're actually going to have an African-American driver on the track in the biggest series, the Monster Cup Energy Series, as Daryl, a.k.a. Bubba Wallace Jr., is going to make his cup debut in the iconic Richard Petty number 43. Um, this is like a really big deal. Um, there hasn't been a black race car driver with this much talent ever in the sport. Um, the fact that he's breaking in into the uh, you know Richard Petty Motorsports number 43, uh, probably the most famous car in the sport, um, is groundbreaking. And um, Ford, recognize that you know this guy probably needs a chance and he's you know one of their up-and-coming uh stars as far as uh you know a pitch man and things like that so they really kind of made this happen they found a way to um you know get this uh deal to go down unfortunately uh eric almarola the full-time job of the 43 car uh got injured and so that's the reason why the spot has been opened up but Nonetheless, you know, somebody, you know, somebody goes down, opens up a spot for somebody else to step up, and uh, Bubba Wallace is getting that chance. So uh, this Sunday, um, he's going to make his start. He's going to um, run at Pocono. It's going to be his first race. He's probably going to get about six to eight races um, at least before uh, the original driver of the 43 starts to kind of get back into where he can maybe get back into the car. So um, hopefully he can get some good finishes and Ford can work something out where they can maybe find him a ride for the rest of the year in the big time series. So really thrilled. This has kind of been about a three, four year process in the making um, since he won his first truck race and kind of got on the national scene as an up and coming uh, driver. Um, he's a part of NASCAR's diversity series. Um, his uh, other classmates have already made it into NASCAR. Those are Daniel Suarez and uh, Kyle Larson. Both of those guys are uh, have Mexican descent. So, um, but Wallace was the third uh, member of that diversity, original diversity class. So now he's there too. So just, yeah, really excited for this Sunday. So can't Maybe wait add, to see what he does. I want to add to the fact that um, this past uh, race weekend, um, uh, NASCAR had its the NASCAR diversity program had its first African American woman to serve as a pit crew, the Denny Hamlin's crew. Um, her name is uh, Brianna Daniels. Uh, she will be. Uh, she will actually be. She's already made her debut. She will be actually on on stage when Hamlin pits this weekend. So shout out to them and 
uh, just wanted, I know I have some friends that were personally involved in that NASCAR diversity project, including one, uh, Terrence Jenkins, who is a North Carolina anti-grad, and he was one of the first uh, first guys to go through when they were just allowing interns in that program uh, to serve in the media part. So um, it's great to see that it's been a long time coming. To, for those for those folks that were the first graduates, so it's a very very proud moment. Uh, the Twitter at is NASCAR Diversity. Right, right. So yeah, they're doing really big things over there. So you know, just trying to open up the sport to you know more people and uh, people that they you know don't think but have an interest. But you never know; there could be some kid and his dad racing go karts that sees Bubba race on that track. Um, you know, tomorrow and be like, yeah, we're gonna keep doing it. This is this can actually happen for me. So just really excited. So for Tyler, for Jesse, and also Nabias, I'm your host Don Delorente, and now you know the score.